You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. No matter how successful someone may be and seem from the outside, we all have our own inner struggles. During the earlier years of Anthony Hopkins, in his career, he found himself in his own battle with alcoholism. Anthony's addiction started innocently. He said he just adopted a worldly mindset, and he drank because that's what you do in the theater. You drink. I was hell-bent on destruction. The award-winning actor recalled it was like being possessed by a demon, an addiction I could not stop, and there are millions of people around just like that. Listen to what Anthony Hopkins says, but it's in our weakest moment that God's strength works best. Now, this is Sir Anthony Hopkins this is the old, you know, classic actor. This is the guy that likes to eat people. It's in our weakest moments that God's strength works best. Sir Anthony Hopkins realized that he needed help, so he turned to Alcoholics Anonymous. Up until then, Anthony Hopkins had been an atheist, did not believe in God, but during an AA meeting, a woman walked up to him as they were getting some coffee, walked up to him and simply asked him the question, why don't you just trust in God? And Anthony Hopkins said with that, he said at that moment, he put his trust in God. Now, I wouldn't call him a Christian. I don't know. Uh, This was a fascinating article that's just out on Anthony Hopkins uh, that I was reading. I read it in several different places. But he says his spiritual life is growing And he is now beginning to quote scripture. And what I saw him quoting were the words of Jesus Christ. But Anthony Hopkins said in that moment that he put his trust in God, that he believed in God, he said immediately he was delivered from the taste of alcohol. Which is a fascinating testimony that this world-class actor is now giving uh, of how his belief in God now has changed his life. Just by somebody, one lady, we don't even know her name, who walks up to get a cup of coffee and looks at him and says, why don't you just trust in God? Now, you know, through the course of a week, we Christians rarely ever think about the gospel. In all honesty, we rarely do. We save that for Sunday mornings. We come in here, we'll think about the gospel, we'll talk about the gospel, but we rarely think about it during the course at work, at school, in the dorm room, you know, in running around the neighborhood, doing all the things we do. We rarely think about the gospel and even less about even sharing the gospel But that's exactly what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want you to look with me at Exodus chapter 18. It's really a fascinating chapter. I have, I normally read, and I tell people this, I I read dead people. 
Uh, when I read theology, I read the people that have died. <laughs> it's just safer that way. They've already lived their life. I love the old British scholars that are long gone, about 100 years ago. I love the old British preachers of about 100 years ago. And uh, I read those guys like Parker and Spurgeon and McLaren, McLaren, or um, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, guys like that. I can't find any of them that preach on the first 12 verses of Exodus chapter 18. And I found that to be fascinating. I couldn't find it even with a couple of guys like Boyce, who's got a big thick book on Moses, or with Lutzer, who has written on the life of Moses. Nobody talks about this, but it is as clear a presentation of the gospel as you'll ever see in Scripture. Now, the word euangelion is a Greek word. It means good news. It's our word that we translate evangelism. Euangelion becomes evangelism. And uh, you don't read that until you get to the New Testament, but I'm telling you, I call these first 12 verses right here in Exodus chapter 18, the gospel according to Moses. Moses is going to share the gospel, and he's going to share the gospel with his father-in-law. Now, let me just kind of set the scene. Moses has now led all of these Hebrews down to the mountain of God. They've eventually gotten down to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, or uh, Jabal Musa, which is, the, which is what they, the Arabs call it today, Jabal Musa, which is Moses' mountain. And uh, they've gotten down there to that mountain. They're camped there, beginning in chapter 18, verse 5. At the end of the verse, you'll see that they're at the mountain of God. Uh, Moses is not going to go up on the mountain until you get into chapter 19, but just hold all of that in abeyance to right now. He gets there, and his father-in-law um, comes down to see him. He brings his wife. He brings Zephora. Most likely, Moses had sent her away because he was fearful that Pharaoh would probably uh, take his wife hostage, take his sons hostage, and say, if you don't quit this, I'm going to take the life of your wife and children. So he sends them back to her father, back to Jethro, out into the wilderness, but Jethro comes. If you'll let me begin to read that in verse 1 of chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel. And Jethro, verse 2, Moses' father-in-law, you're told that twice, took Moses' Moses's wife, Zephorah, and he sent her away because Moses had sent her away. And, and, and the two sons, of whom was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, let me just look at this for a moment, okay? Uh, hold everything else off for just a second. Moses has these two sons. He has Gershom, that basically the name Gershom means a sojourner in a foreign land. Uh, it means to sojourn. When you say sojourn, I'm a sojourner. It, it me, I'm in a foreign land. I'm in a land that I don't fit in. I'm in a land that is not my own. I'm in a land where I am different. I am in a land where I am in bondage. That was Egypt for Moses. The children of Israel were in bondage. The other boy's name was Eliezer. Great Old Testament name. I love that name. Eliezer was his name. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now that's a long explanation for the name Eliezer. Eliezer El. Is, it's Theophric. It has the name of God in his name, and it means God delivered. God is my deliverer. 
And in the context of Moses, God has delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So you've got these two boys. Now listen to this. Look at this. These two boys right here and their names really make up the testimony of Moses. That's the testimony. I was in bondage. God delivered me. I was in captivity. God delivered. I was in a place that I did not belong. God delivered me. God saved me. God spared me. Spared me from all of that. Spared me from Pharaoh's sword. Saved my life. All of that. Here are these two boys whose name bear out the mark of the testimony of Moses. Now, I want to talk about that for a minute. I just want to stop and share just for a minute with those of you that are parents. You've got children that are grown, they're out of the house, or they're about to get out of the house, they're gone. And uh, those of you that are young and you've got little children at home, I want to tell you something. Never, do not ever underestimate uh, the testimony of your life and its imprint on the life of your child. Don't ever underestimate that. Don't ever take it lightly. Now, everything that I read tells me that the reason why we're watching so many young people leave the church in our day is not because the church does not have the answers for them. It's because they watch their parents and they hear what their parents say and they see how their parents live and they see no connection between what God's word says and what they say they believe and how they live. Now, that's hard. That's harsh. But that is fact. You need to know the truth. You don't come here for me to cover up truth. Uh, I'm here to tell you that's exactly what teenagers will tell you. It's exactly what college students will say to you. You'll see it as I quote a study in just a little bit uh, of uh, college atheists, what, what they believe. But that's the truth. The thing is, is if you believe the word of God and you've been converted by Jesus Christ and you live that testimony out before your child, let me tell you something. There will never be as great a witness in their lives as you. Now, God may use a preacher down the road. God may use a personality down the road. God may use um, a roommate down the road. God may use an employer down the road. But I want to tell you something, regardless of who God uses down the road to speak to your child that has gone off in rebellion, let me tell you, there will be no greater testimony than your testimony in the life of that child. Now, they may never come home and tell you, you know what, it was how you lived in front of me. They may never do that. But let me tell you, down in their heart, they will never get away from a mom or a dad that was sold out to Jesus Christ. Now, they may go off into rebellion. They may go off into sin. They may go off into disbelief. But I want to tell you, listen, if you have poured into them, you need to understand, number one, everybody has, has the ability to make their own decision. I believe, I happen to believe in a free will. Uh, God gives you a free will, and he's not, he's not threatened by it. He's not threatened by your free will. He gives you a, a, the right to choose. You can choose. And you may choose to go off in rebellion, but I want to tell you something. That child will never get beyond your personal testimony in their life. You may never see it in your lifetime, but I want to tell you, I think God will honor that. Okay? All right? That's what you see in the life of Moses right here. He has two sons in whom his testimony has been imprinted. Imprint your life for Christ in the life of your child. It's the best witness they will ever have. I want to tell you right now, I'm where I am today because of my dad.
if, well, I'll just leave it at that. I was going to say I could have wound up in the penitentiary. But um, because of my dad, I am where I am this day in my relationship with Christ. That was true of Moses. Now, Moses lived for 40 years in the tents of Jethro. You ever stop to think about that? He lived 40 years in the tents of Jethro. Now, Jethro was the priest of Midian. And here is Moses, and Moses had uh, all of this feeling that God was about to use him. Remember back in chapter 3 and 4 when God was, he believed God was going to use him to, to lead the Hebrews out? And he goes and takes matters into his own hand, kills an Egyptian. But he had this sense, God's calling me to do something. He just wasn't calling him to kill somebody. Uh, but God was, he had this stirring. And for 40 years as he lives with Jethro, in the tents of Jethro, I have no doubt that they talked about things of religion. Moses talked about God. Jethro talked about his religion. They shared something. Listen, they shared something in common. Do you realize Jethro was a Midianite? Midianites came from Midian. Midian was the son of Abraham and Keturah. So both their fathers ultimately was Abraham, the Jew, and the Midianites. Now the Midianites, these sons of Abraham and Keturah, they turned to go off into paganism and into idol worship and away from God. So I am certain that Jethro and Moses many a night would sit and look at the stars and would talk about Father Abraham. And then they would talk about other things that they believed and they shared. Now, as a priest of Midian, you have to get this in your head, he was the one who taught the Midianites how to worship. He was the one who literally led the Midianites in worship. He was the one who would sacrifice for the Midianites. What did the Midianites believe? You've got these two groups of people in the Old Testament that run parallel to each other, and I don't have time to talk about this, but one happens to be the Midianites, and they're always wrapped up around the Moabites. Now, the Moabites are family, and they're all related to the Jews, but the Moabites are related also to the Midianites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the, you know, all of these ites. So they're all related together and they're related to the Jews. So you find the Moabites and you find the Midianites always together. And if you'll do this, if you'll just put your finger right there in Exodus chapter 18, look over to Numbers chapter 25 for just a moment. I'm going to show you something about these Midianites and their worship. They're intermingled in with these Moabites, and so you're going to read several things here. When Israel, and I'm, I'm beginning in verse 1, Numbers chapter 25, when Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. That is, they went out and they began to convert with them. Uh, they invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel joined them. Uh, uh, to Baal of Peor. Now, if you look down, you'll see in the next couple of verses that there is one of the sons of Israel who came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. And in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the entire congregation, I don't know how to say this with children in here, so I just won't say it, okay? 
Uh, but there was something going on in, in, in front of everybody. It's out in the open. They've come out of the closet. They're out in the open in front of everybody. Well, Baal is, or Baal, or as we call him, Baal, is, means Lord. He was the Lord of the Canaanites. And uh, there are specific things about Baal or Baal. This is Baal Peor. Now, I'm not even going to translate Peor because it is so grossly nasty uh, that there's no way I can just talk about it. So all I can tell you is that it is degenerate sexual activity. Um, by the way, I read a fair amount of history. I'm in the middle of reading right now A Short History of Europe, which is a fascinating book, very interesting. But if you read any of history, if you go back and you read anything about uh, the, the um, Assyrians or the Babylonians, or if you go back and certainly you have read about the fall of Rome, let me tell you the last stage in the fall of an empire or a nation is sexual degeneracy. Where do you think we are today? Where do you think we are as a nation today when all the laws now that are being pushed are being pushed by half a percent of the American population? Just this week, the state of Washington passed a law that said if your nine-year-old wants to change his or her gender, and a parent will not let that child do it. The state has the right to take your child. In America, I'm not talking about the old Soviet Union. I'm not talking about China. I'm talking about in America. How does that make you feel? That fires me up. It ought to fire every one of us up. You don't need to ask, you know, what are children thinking when they go and they sit at story time with a transgender reader. They think this is a clown. That's what they think. What you should ask is, why do these transsexuals want our children so badly? There is a shift going on in this country right now. I am telling you, and we'd better wake up and smell the coffee, and we'd better decide we are going to take a stand. And I read a fascinating article this week that talked about third graders in China. Do you know what third graders in China are studying? Calculus. I didn't even study that in the 12th grade. Calculus. I didn't either, brother. I never saw I had enough sense to stay away from it. Third graders in China studying calculus while third graders in America are going to study time, going to storybook time. That'll catch up with the country, and it won't take very long. It'll catch up. You say, when a preacher, you know, I'm not so sure I'm real happy with you discussing this. I don't give a flip. <laughs> I ain't never been scared in the pulpit, and I'm not afraid now. If it empties the place, then I'll just start over, brother. I know how to share Jesus Christ. I can witness, and I, listen, I baptized a man this morning. I went and witnessed to 78 years old. I shared with him Thursday, uh, Tuesday, baptized him this morning. I can lead people to Christ. I know I can, and that's what I want to talk to you about. So I'll get off of that, but I'm telling you, that is what's going on when you come to chapter 18. You've got the priest of these people 
who lead them and instruct them and guide them. And now Moses comes and Moses understands that I have an accountability before God. I have an accountability before God to share the gospel regardless of relationship or religion. This guy's going to tackle two things right here. I'm going to share the gospel with my family and I'm going to share it with somebody who is wrapped up in a different religion. Now, those are the two things we don't like to do. I don't want to do that. I'll get on a plane, preach, I'll go halfway around the world. I'll go out and share the gospel with somebody there, but don't ask me to share it with my brother-in-law. Don't ask me to share it with somebody in my family. And really, don't ask me to go and share with somebody of a different religion. Shouldn't we respect that? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we respect that uh, they believe that? Listen, you can respect and watch them go straight to hell. What we ought to do is to do what the gospel calls us to do, and that is share Jesus Christ. We're accountable to God for that. Now, let me just show you what's going on here. Watch it how Moses greets his father-in-law. Now, this is his father-in-law. The Bible tells me here that he comes, his father-in-law comes, and that Moses bows down, that's honor. He kisses him, that's respect. They ask each other of their welfare, how are you doing, how are you doing, how's it going with you, how are the flocks, how is the family, how is, you know, he's an old man, how's your back, you know, all of this kind of stuff. They go through that, and then he takes him into the tent, and I know what they do. They sit down to eat because in any Bedouin, any Arab, at that time, any Jew that lived out like that, they would invite you in, and the first thing they did, you would sit down, they would bring you water, they would bring you bread, they would bring you salt. So that's what they're going to do. And do you know what Moses does there? Let me tell you something, folks. Moses opens the door to share the gospel with his father-in-law. How you greet somebody will either open the door or it will shut the door to sharing the gospel. Now, two things I want you to see. Number one, first of all, the lost live in incompleteness. Now, that's the best you can say about Jethro. He was just incomplete in his life. Anybody that is lost apart from Jesus Christ has an incompleteness in their life. I'll go back to Pasquale, the great French mathematician and theologian who said that in every single heart, there is a God-shaped vacuum. There is an incompleteness that is there in the heart and the life of a lost person. So here was Moses who had lived 40 years with Jethro. And at the end of that 40 years, you know what happens. Moses is out. He sees a bush burning and, and he goes to see the bush and God speaks to him. And it's out of that experience that God calls Moses to go to Egypt and to lead his people out of Egypt. Now, what does Moses do at the end of that when God calls him and he acquiesces and goes, he goes back to his father-in-law. You can go back to Exodus chapter four and he asks his father-in-law, can I leave to go back to my people in Egypt and see how they are? Now, that's the verse in uh, Exodus chapter four. He goes, he goes to his father-in-law and asks now, in all of that, I have no doubt that with his wife, with his two sons, with his father-in-law, with the whole family, he doesn't share. Listen, God has spoken to me. I'm sure he shares that. 
I've had the most incredible experience you can imagine, and God has spoken to me, and God has called me to go back and to lead his people, my people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt and out of their bondage. I am certain that he told Jethro that, and because of that, through this, I think you see three things about Jethro. You see three things about people who are incomplete without Jesus Christ. Number one, you find them in this place of waiting. Uh, The lost live in waiting. They don't know what they're waiting for, but they're waiting. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for his people, Israel, and how the Lord had brought uh, Israel out of Egypt. And he just listens and he waits. And he waits and he waits. When will Moses get back? When will Moses get close enough? When will Moses come and tell me what has been going on? Look at this in verse 6. He sent word to Moses. When he heard that Moses was close by, he sent word to Moses. He didn't wait for Moses to send word to him. He sends word to Moses. I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you. I'm coming. I've been waiting. You've shared with me that God spoke to you out of the burning bush. And by the way, you're going to see this. The reason I believe that is because just a little bit, Jethro's going to use that covenant name of God, Yahweh, in the text. He says, I've been waiting. I heard what you said before you left. I've heard all kind of things since you've been gone. And I've been sitting here waiting. I am waiting for you to come back and share with me what is going on in your life. Do you realize there are people around you every single day waiting to hear something from you? They're waiting to know. What what is it about you? They're waiting to know. why, Why do you respond the way you do? Why do you talk the way you do? Why do you do the things that you're doing? They're waiting to hear that. They're not going to bring it up. But let me tell you, the people at school, the people in the dorm, the people at work, the people in the neighborhood, they sit and they wait for a moment when you get close enough to them that they could hear what's going on in your life. I shared with y'all before the night that I drove into Wendy's. I, I used to go back. Now, listen, my wife knows it, so there's no need of anybody telling her about it. But I, I would go to Wendy's after church on Sunday nights and eat a hamburger before I got home when she would get home after church, go in and fix some supper. Because I was just that hungry, okay? I was hungry. And so I, I pulled into the Wendy's parking lot like I did a number. Of, she's put a tracker on my car by but So anyway... <laughs> Anyway, I I can't do it anymore. But I pulled in there, and the girl was leaning out of the window. She was just leaning out the window like this. No cars behind me, nobody else around. And the girl was just up, leaning out the window. And I pulled up, and the girl looked at me, and she said, I'm just standing here waiting to see if there's anybody out there that really loves me. And in the next 90 seconds, I shared the gospel. I had to throw the gospel down as fast as I could get it out because cars then started pulling up behind me. The world is waiting. The world is hungry. They're waiting. They want to know what it is about you. They're curious about you. And so the world waits. But number two, let me tell you something else. The world wonders. They just wonder. They speculate. They think. Jethro knows the names of these grandsons, and he's put two and two together. Gershom, I'm a sojourner. I've been in this land of bondage, but now Eliezer, God has delivered me. They wonder, how does that work? 
How are you saved? How does God operate in your life? How does Jesus come to be Savior of your life? So they sit and they wonder and they wait. And then number three, they wish. They wish. They wish for something to happen to them like has happened to you. They can't explain it. They can't talk about it. They cannot theorize about it. But they know, I wish I had something in my life like I see in their life. That was Jethro. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel. I wish God could do something like that. I wish God would, it would come and in some kind of way I could experience this supernatural thing like Moses has. I've been the priest of Midian for so long and nothing like that has ever happened to me. So the world waits, the world wonders, and the world wishes. You say, how do you know all of that? Well, I, I just read it in the text. I don't know if you know Larry Taunton. Larry Taunton is a real Christian scholar, does a lot of research. Just a few years ago, did a, a piece of fascinating research on college students who had left the church and gone into atheism. So many young people today are leaving the church and they are going off into just nothing. In fact, the fastest growing group in America are the nothings. But there are a lot of them that have gone off into atheism. They just don't believe anymore. I want you to listen to his report. Some of these young atheists had gone to church hoping to find answers to tough questions about faith. Others hoped to find answers to questions of personal significance, purpose, and ethics. Serious-minded, they often concluded that the church services were largely shallow, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. But now listen to this. In contrast, this is fascinating. Listen to this. In contrast, these young atheists expressed their respect for those ministers who actually took the Bible seriously. Listen. Without fail, our former church attending students expressed positive feelings for those Christians who unashamedly embraced biblical teaching. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us, I really can't consider a Christian a good moral person if he isn't trying to convert me. Wow. Christianity, Michael says, is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life and you would want to change the lives of others. That's an atheist college student at Dartmouth who has more conviction about Christians sharing the gospel than people in Baptist churches today. Woo, amen. Amen. What a word of indictment. I don't know if that just sinks in, but that just absolutely pierces me. You see, the world is incomplete. A lost person is incomplete. If you listen to them, you'll hear it. If you watch them, you'll see it. And apart from Christ, they live in incompleteness. And what they want is they want to be made whole. Now, let me give you the second thing. 
And the second thing is this, the lost respond to inclusiveness. Now that's what's going to happen here. It's kind of fascinating to me how Moses responds to Jethro. He doesn't look at, you know, the most dangerous person in the world is the first uh, semester seminary student. Uh, when they have their first semester of Greek and they take their first, they, they come out and they all think that they are Chuck Swindoll, I guess. Uh, they all come out thinking that they're David Jeremiah or something. Anyway, uh, they're interesting and they're interesting to teach, by the way. Um, uh, Moses doesn't treat Jethro like he has leprosy. He doesn't look down his holy, pious nose at Jethro. What he does is this, and again, how you respond to people will either open the door or slam it shut. He comes, and he bows down, and he kisses him, and he asks him about his welfare. And if you look at the end of verse 7, it says, he went into the tent. He takes him into his tent. Now, for 40 years, Moses had gone into the tent of Jethro. Now, this is because Jethro now has come to Moses. They're camped outside of Mount Sinai, and now Jethro comes into the tent of Moses. What is that? It's inclusiveness. Come into my tent. I know who I am. I know I'm a preacher. I know I am God's servant. I know who you are. You're the priest of the Midianites. But there's an inclusiveness here. I welcome you in. I care for you. You matter to me. And what does he do? Look at what he does immediately. Verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. He goes through the whole thing. He said, I went to Pharaoh and I said, let my, you know, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, I'll not let them go. And he, he goes through all the plagues. And then he gets to the 10th plague. And he says, let me tell you, he says, God had us take a lamb and slay that lamb that was a year old and paint the blood over the doorposts. And that night the destroyer came. And when he saw the blood that was over our home, he passed over the home. But in those homes where the blood was not there, he uh, took the life of the firstborn. We got to the Red Sea. He opened the Red Sea. Uh, we got to the other side, and here comes the Egyptian army, and God closes the Red Sea. We got to Marabah. He talks about all the things, that, the, all the problems, all the complaints of the people. He talks about it to, uh, to Jethro, his father-in-law. He said, we got there, and the water was bitter, and the people complained against us, and they fussed. I didn't know what they were going to do to us, and then God showed me a tree, and I threw it in the water. And they, you know, He goes through all the things. Then they were hungry, and God brought in manna. And then they wanted more than manna, and God brought them in quail. You know, all of this, he get, goes through the whole thing. He tells him five times in this seven verses, you're going to read the word delivered, 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 delivered. The whole theme of this is God's deliverance. And he's telling Jethro, this is how God delivers. This is how God saves. This is how God redeems. All through this whole thing, he just simply bears witness. He just simply bears testimony. Now, that's when I want to take a few minutes now. I hope you've got a pen. I hope you've got a pencil. I hope you've got something to write. If you don't have anything to write on, if you've got a Bible, you see back in the back of these Bibles, you've got a clear page back there. Or in the front, you've got a clear page. Write in that. Write this down. I'm going to give you four things you can do when you meet somebody and you need to share Jesus with them. Because you need to be sharing Jesus. You say, well, how do I do that? I'm going to give you four ways to do it. Four ways to do it. Number one, tell them why you were not a Christian. Begin with that. That'll get their attention. 
Hey, let me tell you, you know, everybody wants to come up and tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you why I was not a Christian. I was not a Christian because I was just ignorant. I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. Never went to church as a kid. Nobody ever took us. Nobody ever came and told us about you. I just didn't know. Maybe that was what it was with you. Nobody had just ever told you. Nobody, you'd never heard before. Maybe it was because there's just a lot of pride in my life. Listen, I had my own way of living. I didn't want Jesus to mess that up. I had a good thing don't going. I, I was doing this and doing that and doing the other. And I just thought, well, I don't want to give my life to Christ. I'm doing, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm following my own agenda. I don't want to follow his agenda. Maybe it was pride. Maybe that's just rebellion right there. Maybe that's what you were doing. Maybe number three, maybe it was fear. Maybe you thought to yourself, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to, to come to Jesus. I don't know. He's liable to make me go to Africa or something. You know, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what God was going to do to me if I gave my, I was just afraid. Let me tell you, you know, you know why two years I ran from God when God was calling me to ministry? Because I didn't want to be a preacher. I was scared to death he's going to call me to preach. <laughs> scared to death. Why? I didn't want anything to do with the church. At five years of age, I'd grown up in a church where I loved my pastor and uh, I could tell you his name right now, but I won't do it. He had five children. They lived right down the street. We played together. It, it was wonderful. They came to my house. I went to their house. And then my pastor fell into immorality. And at five years of age, I didn't know what that was, but I knew it was awful bad. And then I had another pastor who came out of the closet. And, and I just thought, why, why would you want to do anything with the church? Why, why, why do you want to be a part of any of that? And so when God was chasing me for two years, I was scared to death God was going to call me to preach. And so the Sunday night that I went down and I surrendered to ministry, I said, God, I'm coming to surrender to everything but preaching, pastoring the church. <laughs> Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. So um, anyway, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's fear. Maybe you had a bad experience. Maybe you had a horrible experience in the church. Maybe you've been abused in a church. Maybe a church has run you off or run you out or run you down. I don't know. But you just tell them why, you know, why didn't I come to Christ? This is why I didn't come to Christ. Now tell them secondly, here's the second thing, what your life was like. Well, you know, hey, I didn't know any different. I, I thought it was going along okay. I thought everything was all right. I was never really happy. I was never really satisfied. I was never really fulfilled. Tell them what your life was like without Christ. You know, I was just, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know why I was here. I didn't know what, what the purpose was for my life. So tell them what your life was like without Christ. And then number three, tell them how you were saved. Give them your salvation experience. I was sitting on a camp cot in the mountains of, of North Carolina, and a guy put a Gideon read New Testament to John 3.16, opened to John 3.16 and said, read that verse, put your name in it. For God so loved Mac Brunson that he gave his only begotten son. I got under conviction. I read that far and I knew I'm a sinner. I was a sinner. Now listen, you know, and I couldn't do anything about it. I felt the weight of my sin. I felt the guilt of my sin. And there was nothing I could do. I knew I couldn't save myself. So I continued to read, and at the end of that, I gave my life to Jesus. I know, as well as I know I'm standing up here on this platform, I know I was sitting on that bed, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. You can't talk me out of it. I know I did. That's the only, and listen, 
I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. I know that I'm going to be saved. I know that I'm in the process of being saved. I know I was saved. I know I'm being saved. And I know one day I'm ultimately going to be saved. It'll be complete when I get to heaven. So tell them how you came to Jesus, whatever your testimony is. And then number four, here's the fourth thing. Tell them what has changed in your life. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, what has changed, what has changed, what has changed, go back to number three and be sure you're saved. Because if you're saved, something's changed in your life. I can tell you, I don't want my wife to, but she could tell you the change in my life. What I used to be to what I am now, you don't need to know. <laughs> but it changed. There's been a change in my life. That's exactly what Moses is doing right here. He's saying to his father-in-law, listen, God can change your life. Now, I've got to give you the second thing because I'm four minutes over and I'm halfway through my sermon. So let me give you the second thing. Now, are you ready to fly? We're going to fly. Here we go. Number two, lostness responds to this inclusiveness. It wants to be inclusive. There we are. He brings him into his tent. He tells him now about this. So what does Jethro do? He, 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 he trusts God by faith. Look at this in verse 11. Here's the faith. Now I know that the Lord, that's the name Yahweh right there. Now I know that Jehovah, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. He's not just one God among the other gods. He is the only God. There are no other gods. He puts his faith in God. Number two, there is this great uh, joy in his life. Look at verse 9. Jethro rejoices over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel. Now, he rejoices for what God has done in the life of the Hebrews. You know who the Midianites are? The Midianites are the guys that bought Joseph out of the pit and took him down into Egypt and sold him to the Egyptians, sold him to Potiphar. The Midianites are the same guys that team up with the Moabites who invade the land of Israel during the day of a guy named Gideon. They're the enemies of Israel. And yet our God is so good that he saves a pagan priest from the Midianites and he is able to rejoice in how God is saving the Jew. Wow. And the third thing is he blesses them. He praises God. You see this in verse 10. So Jethro said, blessed be the Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. The word blessed right there, if you look it up in the, in the Hebrew, it's the same word as to kneel. Barak. Barak. Not Obama, but Barak. That's the word, blessed. It's the same word, to kneel. It means to kneel and worship, to kneel in blessing. That's what he does. He comes by faith, and in that faith, he trusts God, and there is a joy, and there is a blessing. And then look at this. Here's the amazing thing, verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, we've been told that about three or four times in this text, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. 
And Aaron came, and all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, father-in-law, before God. That is, when they discovered that Jethro had come to believe in Jehovah God, all the elders came out and got around him and said, hey, let's eat. They brought him. There's the inclusiveness. Anybody that walks this aisle and comes to this church right here, comes to Jesus or comes to be a part of this church, the whole of us ought to gather down here and just include them into the body. Inclusiveness. Let me tell you, the world is hungry for inclusiveness because the world does what? It is constantly excluding and canceling everybody. 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 Now, I've got to show you this and I'll be through. But it's too fascinating to pass. Where are they? Where are they camped? They're camped in the shadow of Mount Sinai. What's going to happen in chapter 19? Moses is going to go up. Uh, God's going to speak to him, and he's going to begin to lay out all the things that have got to happen there, and he's going to go up on Mount Sinai, and what's he going to bring down? The law. Law. He's going to bring down law. What does Paul say about Mount Sinai in Galatians chapter 4? He compares Mount Sinai to the, bond, to the woman in bondage, to um, Hagar, to the slave woman. He compares the two, their bondage. The son of the slave woman was not accepted. Sinai is compared to her. You've got the law coming down. What does the law do to you? It puts you under bondage, and you can't get out. So in the shadow of the law, just before it comes, you get an incredible picture of grace. Great, a Gentile, pagan, worshiping Gentile whom the gospel is shared with, and he comes to believe that Jehovah is God. Sounds like they're in the shadow of Calvary to me. And what happens to this page? What happens when you get saved? Now, I'm just going to tell, tell you this. What happens when you get saved? God begins immediately to move in your life. Do you see what he does? He brings a whole burnt offering. The book of Leviticus hadn't been written yet. How did he know that? How did he know to bring a whole burnt offering to God? as a sin offering and other sacrifices? How did he know that? Because when you come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God begins to direct your life, and it will always be in accordance to his word. And so before the word of Leviticus was given, he already knew in his heart what he needed to do. Jiminy Cricket. That is amazing to me. What God can do when you share. Why don't you just trust in God? Let's stand. How about you? How about you this morning? Why don't you just trust in Jesus Christ? He's come for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And now he calls you by his spirit. Come and follow me. Come give your life to me. Put your faith and trust in me.
Come and profess me as Lord of your life, as Savior of your soul. Would you come and do that this morning? Would you slip out and come and make that decision for Jesus? Others of you need to come and join this fellowship, this church, to put your life in the life of this church. Some of you just need to get to the altar. Pray about something God is talking to your heart about. I just invite you to come. Father, in these moments, may our response glorify you and honor your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.